This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. How do you do, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit. I'm your host, Piotr Kuzin, and I'm very excited to be joined today uh, by yet another member of the SAIS Foreign Policy Institute, um, Professor Jeffrey Price. Uh, Professor Jeffrey Price is a, is a non-resident fellow at the FPI um, and uh, a lecturer at the School of Advanced International Studies, where I myself got my MA in Strategic Studies. His work focuses on international security, law and diplomacy. So there's going to be a lot for us to discuss here today. Uh, he also teaches at Georgetown University in, here in DC, uh, and he's also... Um, a man of many trades, uh, he was a senior policy advisor to the Undersecretary for Policy uh, on the areas of the Balkans. Uh, and I think we're going to have a great discussion, some of the questions that we're going to be covering, um, NATO, the role of Sweden and Finland, but also um, uh, what the Ukrainian war means for sort of nuclear uh, engagement and also the role of the UN Security Council. So we're going to be covering quite a broad array of thematic issues today. Professor Price, uh, thank you very much for joining us on a Sunday. Uh, I'm very curious to hear your your perspective on how has the Ukrainian war, if we start with quite a broad question, how has the Ukrainian war redefined, should we say, European security in the past six weeks? Great. Well, first, thanks very much for, for having me, Piotr. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. And thanks to everybody who's, uh, who's tuned in. Um, I do think that the Ukrainian war is a turning point in European security. It's something that was way off on the horizon um, when uh, when we uh, were looking at European security in the aftermath of the Cold War. Uh, you may have mentioned this. I was in the government from 1993 to 1999 when we were dealing with how to uh, reshape or evolve the European security architecture after the collapse of the Soviet bloc. And I think we had to anticipate then that, that you know, Ukraine would always be one of the hardest um, issues. But the basic principles that were at play then, I think, are very much at play now uh, and, in fact, being strengthened. So without going too much into the detail, some things come out. Uh, one is that Russia has really defined itself in a way differently than we had all hoped is since February 24th as a very aggressive challenge to international security and to the values that the West uh, had hoped would, would prevail across Europe. Uh, second, the response has been impressive from the West. The solidarity and the resolute uh, nature of support for Ukraine, I think, has been really uh, inspiring uh, and dramatic. So if anything, uh, to me, what you're seeing is a challenge to the uh, to the European security architecture based in large part on NATO and the European Union. And, and that structure responding, I think, in, in a remarkably unified and forthright way uh, to this challenge. Great. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. And um, 
uh, Professor, a little bit more about the French election and, and also the role of Germany. Um, I'm not expecting you to be uh, an immediate um, political pundit and, uh, and give your reactions to the result. I think we all knew it was coming. But let's say, what, what impact has Ukraine had on, on sort of the dynamics of European security? Specifically, um, Macron is a big pusher for uh, European defence and this idea of strategical right. autonomy. Um, the, the, the strategic compass was their latest initiative under the Common Security and Defense Policy, or C, uh, CSDP as it's known. Jusul, the, um, the um, high representative of the EU, was in Ukraine on Friday with uh, von der Leyen, looking at the, the, uh, the butcher um, uh, massacre and, and areas around Kiev. So what do you think um, about the potential for EU security um, and how that could change given, I mean, Hungary and also Poland? are now not as close as they were. We're seeing the V4 potentially fracture. So, so could you take us through a little bit about those security dynamics and, and the impact relationship with Ukraine? Sure. So, so I kind of, I guess I see three questions there. One is France, one is Germany, and one is the EU. Um, and just to talk briefly about each of those, I am not an expert on French politics, but um, my sense, my sense with regard to the French elections is this is, you know, partly all politics is local. I think the, the, the divisions you see there are reflecting politics in France for some time. Um, and, and, and I think those, those will, those will play out, uh, in, in the second round. With regard to Germany, I think you've seen a dramatic turnaround and that's one of the themes. Uh, you know, the most notable, uh, event may be that Germany has done and, and the Social Democrats have done uh, a virtual 180, uh, as far as their policy towards defense. In, in security and dramatically uh, uh, increased uh, the German defense spending, uh, something that's been an issue between you know, the United States has long uh, encouraged Germany to spend more on defense and, and Vladimir Putin has, has accomplished that. Uh, I'm not sure that was, was his intention, but, but Germany has really, uh, I think, had a sea change uh, in their attitude towards the need uh, for a really much more robust uh, uh, investment in the military. And then the EU, you know, it's, it's complicated as always, but the interesting thing, uh, I think, on two levels, one is the EU has shown remarkable unity. Um, you know, there have always been divisions. There were longstanding concerns about uh, the course of um, democratic institutions uh uh, in Hungary and Poland, uh, I think that there's a lot more solidarity uh, being shown as kind of the top line, uh, most prominent uh, feature, including in Hungary, uh, which not everybody uh, was expecting uh, Hungary to be as uh, completely uh, unified uh, with the EU as far as confronting Russia. So, so there has been a remarkable unity there. And then the EU's response to Ukraine, you know, the visit uh, to Kyiv and, and putting very much on the table EU membership, which, as I, I hope your uh, listeners will remember, was really the event that sparked the whole Ukraine crisis in 2013, 2014. Let's all remember it. Putin will talk about NATO and vastly exaggerate, you know, his vision of how much NATO uh, is a challenge or threat to Russia. But what was really at stake in 2013 was an association agreement between Ukraine and the EU. That's what sparked the Maidan crisis. And that's what sparked the invasion, the taking of Crimea and and uh, the separatist uh, instigating a separatist movement 
uh, in the Donbass. So, so the EU aspect of this is, I think, very important. So my next question is, is, is particularly regarding the Swedes and the Finns. Because, um, you know, Europe as a, as a security landscape is incredibly complex, like absurdly so. We've got the EU, we've got NATO, we've got elements of the UN, we've got bilateral agreements, we've got so many things going on. And in some ways, you know, the, uh, the Finns and the Swedes already provide um, or have access to sort of security dynamics. Uh, in in the EU, but they're not part of NATO. So, could you talk us through a little bit? Like, I'm 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 quite confident personally that the Finns are going to join at this point. Um, they activated what's known as the Modalities for Strength and Interaction, or MSI, um, uh, in the Foreign Affairs. This was about a month ago, two months ago, and that basically increases the amount of information exchanged between the two. Um, and Sweden has been increasing theirs as well. So do you think that we're going to see both countries join? Do you think that they're going to, one may join and the other may not? What, what, what do you think that the uh, impact of Ukraine's conflict is having on, on the Nordic and NATO question? So just in, in general terms, I, I, I believe uh, the Finns said some time ago that uh, before this uh, reached the stage of crisis that it's in now, that, um, you know, as long as Russia didn't tell them they couldn't join NATO, they didn't need to join NATO. But if Russia told them they couldn't join NATO, then they would have to join NATO. Uh, and it's another example of Putin's uh, tactics, I think, accomplishing the opposite uh, of what his stated intentions are. By threatening countries like Sweden uh, and, and Finland, he has caused them to want to become closer uh, to NATO and to have to have that security um, uh, relationship more more overtly. Now, bear in mind, they're both EU members, and there's a, there's a Article forty two point seven. Uh, the EU has a commitment uh, of mutual self defense uh, as well uh, of support in case of aggression. So, so those two countries were always very much part of the Western community. Um, we'll see what what uh, what evolves, but you know I think many people would think that they would be not only quite welcome uh, in NATO, but there are criteria for membership in NATO, and I think those two countries would clearly uh, they have very strong democratic institutions. They have very strong, well developed military. Uh, Finland uh, has certainly demonstrated in the past it, it has the capacity uh, for self defense that should give any aggressor pause. So. Uh, again, I think, you know, countries that are already well integrated into the West generally, and another example of Putin's gambits seem to be accomplishing the opposite of what he, what his goals are. I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you getting in sort of a reference to the podcast name. That's a, uh, we, we had a little, <laughs> we had a little, um, uh, fun here in this uh, in the Ukraine sit rep room as it's known running a poll to see what name we should call the podcast and that was the uh, the eventual winner um so we've uh, so I appreciate that and um, we often use the term the big picture as well which is the name of the club that we're, we're hosting this uh, this room and discussion and podcast so just building on that actually professor one of the questions that I'm really fascinated by is the uh, is this security guarantees thing that the Ukrainians want now I personally think that NATO is off the table um, I, I don't think that that's going to be pushed as much by the, uh, the Ukrainian uh, side. But the thing that I am conscious about is where do these other security guarantees come from? We've had the British sign this trilateral agreement with the Polish and the Ukrainians. And we've also had, um, you know, the growing sort of sense that the three C's initiative, which is basically 12 members of the EU, 
are in the former Soviet bloc, Eastern bloc countries are sort of banding together to sort of enhance their own security dialogue. Do you think that with the EU potentially increasing its security uh, initiatives in its own right, aside from NATO, and Ukraine potentially joining the EU, do you think that that's sort of something that Zelensky is hedging his bets on, assuming that he won't get NATO, but he can get something from the EU and therefore still sort of get the, any potential uh, peace deal? Yeah, that, that I, I have to say, that is very much uh, in play in in the, the current negotiations. And uh, I honestly don't know if we'll, if we'll have real clarity on that until, frankly, the military uh, side of this conflict um, becomes a little bit more uh, resolved, uh, shall we say, because, um, again, again, the irony, uh, for me is that of, of, of all the sort of stated security goals, uh, that Russia had or, or their security interests, a lot of them, uh, were really, um, the concerns of where were overstated. It was, it was not when I think that, that Ukraine was going to become a member of NATO, uh, in the, in the immediate future, because there is a process and there are, uh, qualifications and and you know the, there are there are hurdles uh, that it would have to 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 clear and now what it looks like is uh, is is Ukraine's uh, relationship with the West and with the European countries is actually becoming uh, much stronger. The other thing um, I think most important of all um, is really the is really the military facts on the ground and since February twenty fourth, what people have uh, been very impressed to see is. Not just how bad the Russian army is, but how good the Ukrainian army is. And that's not an accident. This, I think, really started in 2014. What you're seeing now is Ukraine has a very different army than it had in 2014. And to me, my personal impression is that Ukraine was a country that was in many ways undecided, uh, in some ways, you know, not adrift, but, but just not, not clear on its direction geopolitically and what Putin did by uh, taking Crimea in 2014 and by instigating uh, separatism in the Donbass was to actually resolve those questions for Ukraine, to actually take away some of the obstacles uh, for Ukraine's uh, better uh, cooperation and integration into the West. And at the same time, Ukraine's military began a process of becoming a much more developed advanced, competent, professional, and Western type of military with assistance from uh, Western countries. So you see the performance uh, of that military and the attitude of that military, which is much more of a, of the kind of military that we in the West uh, would recognize. All of that as part of an evolutionary process that, that was kicked off by, by Putin's intervention in 2014. And so Ukraine is de facto much more integrated in, into the West already, I think, and you're seeing that reinforced by the by 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 the the robust volume of supply of arms and other kinds of support uh, that 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 the Western democracies are giving to Ukraine. I agree. I, I think you know much of this conflict has, I think, exhibited just how much the Russians use this you know idea of total war or absolute war, as as, as Clausewitz um, coined it, right? Um, and, and that's more evidenced in, in how that they go about treating uh, the humanitarian element. And what we've seen in Bucha uh, and yeah. other parts of Ukraine is just not something, and this isn't me saying that the West do war better, but they just do it very differently to the Russians. And, and there's a, it's, it's very um, reflective of just the differences between nations' usage of military um, 
engagement uh, and how they frame it uh, to their people as well. So, no, I, I very much. Uh, I mean, even the training that we've seen from NATO to Ukraine is is it's it's amazing what 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 has been achieved in the past eight years um, and and how the you know initial sort of voluntary battalions that went to defend uh, the eastern side of Ukraine have become proper, you know, military trained, uh, efficient um, uh, battalions and regiments. So really, really good point. I want to swing it now to a little bit more on the nuclear point. Obviously, uh, the biggest thing we saw about that was the threat of tactical nukes on the ground, which hasn't really happened, and I don't think it would. Um, but also the, the special alert that was risen on Sunday, so exactly six weeks ago, by Putin. If you support Ukraine, I'm going to raise my nuclear weapons to the next level. But that's as far as it went. So it's quite clearly a saber-rattling manoeuvre, uh, and the West didn't respond in kind. But in your opinion, like, how has the Ukrainian war sort of uh, influenced the, the attitude of putting nuclear weapons, say, in Poland, or bolstering the eastern flank of the NATO alliance? And also just the role of the Budapest Memorandum, because the British and the Americans were supposed to come to the defence. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit about that on the nuclear question. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, so uh, so first on the sort of nuclear sabre rattling, I mean, what Putin did, this was part of the sort of seemingly orchestrated, uh, the whole beginning of this war was in the Kremlin's uh, action seemingly sort of planned out, uh, and, and we can talk more about that. It's part of their playbook, I think, was spoiled by the West using information and intelligence to 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 sort of spoil some of their gambits but clearly that that um, uh, episode where he summoned in his military leadership and and talked about raising a level of strategic alert was uh, was meant for public consumption uh, it I think uh, partly theatrical uh, as, as much as strategic um, obviously we in the West pay very close attention to things like this it is irresponsible but extremely consequential. Uh, when you start uh, talking about about nuclear uh, arsenals, um, the response from certainly from the United States was a very calm and measured one. Um, we did not raise our level of alert. We did not sort of take the bait. Uh, if anything, we acted in a way that that sort of calmed and uh, uh, any any concerns on that level. And and it, it would be extremely unwise uh, for Putin to, to 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 go anywhere down that road uh, because that that would uh, put at risk, you know, the, the the entire survival of the Russian state. And I don't think I don't think any 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 wise Russian leader would do that. I I, I will note that Russia has uh, a strategic doctrine. They have a principles which the Kremlin has referred to, and and those. Uh, include a point that nuclear weapons use use of Russian nuclear weapons is either in response to a nuclear threat, a nuclear attack, or to a conventional threat, which puts at risk the existence of the Russian state. And again, here, I don't think there's any credible notion that 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 there is an attack contemplated on Russia compared to what Russia is doing to Ukraine, but an attack that puts it puts at risk the existence of the Russian state. So that that ought not be. A part of the equation, but we obviously have to, to pay very close attention to it. With regard to the eastern flank of NATO, the United States from the very beginning, when Russia started to amass this enormous conventional uh, over uh, over really the last year and, and becoming more acute in the fall, uh, the United States uh, made clear that, one, it was prepared and hoped for uh, de-escalation in a diplomatic 
uh, resolution, but was also prepared if if Russia took uh, the course that it did take, which is that of confrontation and military action. One of the things that was put on the table by Secretary Blinken and by the president is that not only would there be a response economically as far as sanctions, but that that would involve a reinforcement of the eastern flank. And you're already seeing that, a doubling of the multinational groups uh, in the eastern uh, of NATO, uh, what is being discussed now is to make those uh, forces more permanent uh, as opposed to rotational. Uh, you, you, you've seen already a bigger presence in Poland and you'll see a bigger one and in other countries uh, in the eastern flank of NATO. So again, Putin complaining about NATO on his borders takes actions whose natural consequence is actually to increase uh, NATO's presence on his borders necessarily as it has to be since he's now posing an increased threat to NATO. So ironically, uh, you know, Putin again accomplishing kind of the opposite of what he set out to do. There's there's a couple of documents relate that, that, that came about in the 1990s that related to NATO's taking in new members like Poland and also denuclearization of uh, Ukraine and other uh, former Soviet states. Uh, so one you mentioned is the Budapest Memorandum. The other I'll just mention briefly is the NATO-Russia Founding Act of 1997, uh, which gave assurances uh, to Russia that in the current and anticipated security environment that NATO would not see the need to deploy permanent forces uh, in, in the territory of new members. Well, Russia has obviously changed the security environment. So, 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 so the, that, uh, I think, you know, most people who read, read that would think that the, the, the premise of that has changed. Then to the Budapest Memorandum, obviously this this is uh, something that generates uh, a lot of commentary. The Budapest Memorandum was signed in December of 1994, and it was part of Ukraine joining the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as a non-nuclear weapons state. And it contained uh, assurances. Just, just so people are clear, it's not a treaty, it's a memorandum, and it contains assurances, not guarantees. Um, which is it's not it's not like the North Atlantic Treaty, the NATO Treaty. It would be extremely surprising if if there was such a thing in 1994 when when Ukraine was really three three years from being uh, a member of the Soviet Union. That was before we'd even expanded NATO, enlarged NATO to uh, to Poland, uh, Hungary, or the Czech Republic. So it's not a guarantee by the signers that we're going to come to the defense of Ukraine. That that really was kind of not on the table at the time. What it is, is a reaffirmation of commitments that exist already in international law to respect the territorial integrity and independence uh, of Ukraine. And, it, and, and, and most significantly, assurances from Russia that it would respect Ukraine's independence, uh, sovereignty, and existing borders. And, and just, just to, to quickly trick through it, I don't want to take you too far into the legalese of it, but it reaffirms the uh, commitments that were already there in the United Nations Charter and in the Helsinki Final Act. And it also reaffirmed the kinds of commitments that in the non-proliferation regime, nuclear weapon states give to non-nuclear weapon states, which is that if you're a nuclear weapon state, there's certain basic assurances you give, which is you're not going to use nuclear weapons or the threat of nuclear weapons against a country which has forsworn nuclear weapons uh, under the uh, under the non-proliferation treaty. So it contains those assurances. And certainly the non-aggression assurances, Russia has been in blatant violation of them, as well as in violation of the United Nations Charter 
and the Helsinki final act. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I can see we've really gotten into your uh, area of um, uh, sort of passion, which is fantastic. So building on that then, um, we're going to touch upon the UN uh, in a little bit. But uh, I wanted to ask you, um, because I think it's important for international security as a whole, but wasn't necessarily overly discussed, um, in, 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 at least in some circles, like um, I haven't seen many articles about it, but I think it's important uh, uh, symbolically, which is what impact do you think that the, the signing of the AUKUS deal has had yeah. on, um, on the international security, but also not just the AUKUS deal, but what it, what it represents? So uh, this growing appearance that states, countries seem to be collaborating with one another collaborating with one another in minilateralism. This this concept, you know, instead of multilaterals like the AU or the UN, we're seeing smaller niche groups of countries, say five to six, maybe 10 at a max, coming to, to deal with something very specific and, and, and niche. So the AUKUS deal, the signing of the hypersonic missiles on top of the nuclear capable subs that the British and Americans will be uh, helping the Australians uh, uh, garner. Um, but also the Quad is an example of this. Uh, and then um, the V4, you could say, is a minilateral group of the, the three C's initiative, perhaps. All these sorts of growing um, minilateralists. So one question there about sort of the AUKUS deal and hypersonic missiles, but also secondly, the sort of the symbolism of minilateralism, what you think that means for international security? I mean, I think, you know, uh, a little bit of all politics is local, which is that there's no one size fits all international security architecture that, that you know, there are overlapping spheres. Clearly in Europe, there's the EU, there's uh, there's NATO, there's there's larger and smaller uh, organizations designed to fit different constellations of countries in different particular needs. The AUKUS deal, um, I think, is one reflection of kind of a global historic trend, which is for better or worse, we are reverting, I think, in some ways to the a bit of a, a competition between democracies and autocracies. Uh, in the world, um, call it the Cold War, uh, whatever you like. For better or worse, you know, what we had hoped for at the end of the Cold War, which is the evolution of hopefully every country, certainly China, certainly Russia, uh, in the direction of liberal democracy, you know, that we've been disappointed along with that. Over time with China and certainly acutely uh, with Russia, you see great, greater challenges. To, to international security and uh, to the perceived, perceived security of the democracies. And so the response to that is the democracies increasing cooperation to safeguard themselves uh, against, against perceived greater uh, challenges in the security realm. The AUKUS deal, I think, is, is, is a great example of that, where Australia, which you know, is now taking a more, I'd say, robust, forthright approach to security, uh, is looking for capabilities in the undersea uh, realm, which are longer range, have more endurance, you know, are just sort of more, more, more capable. And, and, you know, that's not a bad thing from this, from the standpoint of, of the democracies. And similar with the Quad and other, other constellations where you don't have treaty alliances, but you still have a, an increasing cooperation of democracies in sort of supporting each other's security. And that's, I think, an increasing feature of the international environment today. Amazing. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Uh, 
you're, you're doing a great job at dealing with these big curveball questions I'm flinging at you. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, no, I, I think it's, uh, you know, we're going all over the place, uh, Europe, Southeast Asia. Uh, and now I want to bring it to, uh, to the UN. You know, we've touched upon it briefly, and I'm sure people in the live audience that are here with us in this podcast episode uh, will have as well some questions. But the UN itself, and it's something we were discussing earlier today on April 10th uh, about sort of, you know, the role of the Security Council and the UN in international peace and security. And one of the things that I find um, difficult about the UN is the inability to get things done. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the UN as a, as a, as a, as a concept. Uh, and people must remember that it's the UN that's the problem. It's the inability for countries to internationally cooperate. Um, you know, the 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 the, the, uh, the speech by Zelensky to um, the Security Council was pretty stark, and I think the biggest reminder of um, any recent years, really, about the value of the United Nations and is it really standing by what it means to uphold the whole idea of the Security Council was to prevent. Uh, another, you know, war around the world being of the scale. And now we have a nuclear power attacking a very capable sovereign state uh, to the point now that over a quarter of the population are either internally displaced or refugees across Europe. So where do you think the UN can go to improve itself in terms of its ability to deal with international peace and security? Do you think that there should be, for example, uh, a peacekeeping force, or at least a light, as it's known, a light observer mission deal with any post-conflict or uh, do you think that the UN is just not something we should rely too much on and we should, uh, you know, try and find other and be more effective in internet? So uh, it, it's a great question. And and the UN has obviously, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the performance of the UN uh, and its role for, for a long time. I mean, the problem you have now is that you have a permanent member of the Security Council uh, that is in blatant violation of the UN Charter, and it, it seems to me that there's there's two there's two things at issue here. One is the principles on which the United Nations was founded, and the other is um, the machinery of the UN and how well does it work. You know, Richard Holbrook, a U.S. ambassador to the UN, once said that blaming the United Nations. Uh, for, you know, some of its inactions is like blaming Madison Square Garden for the performance of the New York Knicks. The idea being that the United Nations is the nations that are there. And to a certain degree, you have to look to, to, to the country's uh, political will in the United Nations uh, and not blame the institution itself. That said, I do think that there's a real problem uh, with the machinery. Clearly, because Russia has a veto, the UN Security Council has not performed the executive function uh, that 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 you might hope in this in this context, because Russia is the perpetrator of aggression, but there are other functions that the UN institutions can perform. The Security Council itself, as it was, for instance, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, may not be an actor, but it is a part of the court of world opinion, as Adlai Stevenson said at that point. So, uh, one of the things that Zelensky and his ambassador, who's been spectacular have done very effectively is use the United Nations Security Council as a forum uh, for, you know, making public and frankly embarrassing uh, Russia uh, for its failures to comply with the UN Charter. So it, it has performed some function, not the decision-making function that people might have contemplated. Second, there are alternatives. Um, 
uh, in the wake of the Korean War, there was a mechanism called Uniting for Peace, which was was created in contemplation of a permanent member of the Security Council becoming an obstacle. And so you see a, a recourse to the General Assembly, and you saw, I think, a very trenchant resolution, a very resounding uh, 141 to 5 vote uh, in the in the General Assembly calling out Russian aggression by name, calling it that, and condemning it, and calling for Russia to cease its uh, aggression and to withdraw. So the UN has performed, uh, I think, some useful functions. And depending on how you know the conflict ends up, it is possible that the General Assembly could play a role as well in sort of approving, giving a mandate to a number of mechanisms. Uh, I think it's too early to talk about peacekeeping forces but, you know, that that's obviously one theoretical possibility, as is, you know, accountability mechanisms, because uh, the General Assembly could play a role in those. So we'll have to see how um, this conflict evolves and and hopefully reaches a resolution. But I do think the U.N., you know, if 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 if, if we are agile and I think that the West has been fairly uh, uh, flexible and 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 um, resourceful in how we use the mechanisms available into the UN. I do think that there there are positive roles that the UN can actually play, notwithstanding, you know, the the sort of you know deeply uh, ironic uh, fact that 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 this war of aggression is being perpetrated by a permanent member of the Security Council, which is charged with preventing aggression. Very interesting. Um, no, I, I, I agree. And, and, and as someone who's worked in the UN in and out, uh, I guess I could say I'm in it at the moment in the UN system, at least. But one of the things we were talking about earlier in regards to the UN is this relationship of the modern international system, the sense of it's very unreflective of the changing power dynamics and, you know, emerging states, emerging uh, economies. Um, and so I just wanted to get your take a little bit about you know, the UNSC or Security Council needs to be reformed. It needs to be more reflective of the, you know, power dynamics that exist in a way that they didn't at the end of the Second World War at its, at its inception. You know, India, it needs to be on the council. Um, but the problem is then that has repercussions for, for Pakistan. And then there needs to be an African nation on the council, ideally, but because most the uh, peacekeeping missions are in Africa, but which African nation do you choose? So do you have the African Union as a seat at the table? The EU have said that instead of France and Britain, the EU should be on the council, but then the British aren't any more part of the EU. So they want to stay on the council, but then that's not going to be okay with the French leaving. So what do you think should happen? And how do you think it can happen to, to sort of reform the UN to be more reflective of the uh, of the security landscape? Well, this this is one where I have to say I, I have followed this debate and I don't think I have uh, uh, an answer other than to say that I think you've laid out very well uh, a lot of a lot of the, the the complications because once you start talking about introducing new permanent members, which is one approach, you know, if you bring in uh, Japan, then what about Korea? If you bring in India, what about Pakistan? You know, if uh, uh, and and how do you represent uh, sort of uh, larger organizations like like the um, like the African Union or 
uh, or the EU. And there's obviously sensitivities. Uh, no, no country would ever want to to lose uh, its permanent seat on the Security Council. The problem is, of course, that to reform the Security Council, you need the uh, you need the acquiescence of the Security Council, which makes it which makes it very hard to do anything uh, other than. Up to now, there's just been 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 a lot of debate. So, so uh, my sense is there's a lot of uh, interesting ideas that have been floated. I'm not I'm not sure that that what we're going to see in the near term is an effective change in the structure. Uh, and what what you are seeing right now is in some ways uh, workarounds. Failing a near term reform to to the structure of the Security Council, I think what you may see is countries just, you know, sort of taking the world as it is and using other, other fora like, for instance, the General Assembly or other, uh, other multilateral fora to, to, you know, do what needs to be done. It's not an easy question. And if you did have the answer, I think you'd be whisked into New York right straight away to be, uh, you know, uh, tell us how to do it. Um, the problem you know, is, I don't think anybody, uh, anyone, you know, anybody has the answer that, that, uh, that you know, sort of gets the approval of more than one or, or very few. Uh, uh, every country has a different answer, I think, in some sense to, to this to this problem. So it, it makes it it makes it hard to get uh, it, it, a yeah. different solution. No, it's, you know, I, I definitely think the UN can change. And this kind of leads me into the final question before we uh, we go to uh, the best part of these social podcasts, which is live audience uh, engagement. A couple more questions for you. One, just on this point, uh, we mentioned the uh, Uniting for Peace resolution. Mm-hmm. And, and we've also had things like R2P or Responsibility to Protect, which mm-hmm. have been uh, considered to be big, uh, big steps, but it's not enough. And, and, I, and I do think that there should be ways. To, I personally think that there should be like a, if, for example, three of the permanent members vote against oh, another, that country's veto is frozen or there should be mechanisms around um, the constant vetoing of one member. D- d- what's the word? A discontinuing the entire potential of a resolution passing It's the undemocratic nature of the security council, which is part of the problem. Um, so, you know, how can we sort of, I, I feel that the, the more can be done with the UN General Assembly, for example, um, it, it's, it's where you get a lot of the humanitarian um, uh, developments being being made, but on the security front, the Security Council is a mess. So, you know, it's, do, do you think there are any mechanisms that we could come to mind initially that could help improve that situation? I mean, Ukraine's even said that Russia doesn't deserve its seat because it, by default, took it because it was the biggest uh, member of the former Soviet Union. But like sort of Ukraine's claims a little bit, you know, as much as I think it's a, a good cheeky uh, attempt, I'm not sure it's really based on much groundedness. So just any thoughts on that? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, the, the Ukraine has, uh, let me just say this, done a masterful job at the information war and and sort of the, the public diplomacy side of this. Um Zelensky has been fantastic, and his UN ambassador has also been extremely effective. Um, I would be really optimistic if I thought that there was going to be any sort of magic bullet resolution uh, of these issues. Uh, it, it, the Ukrainians have raised a number of interesting questions about Russia's participation uh, in the Security Council, but there's a lot of history here. So um, it it just I wouldn't bet the farm on on that being the avenue uh, to to uh, to certainly resolve the Ukraine uh, 
conflict. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the UN models in some ways its own challenges. But going back to the situation in Ukraine, uh, I think the UN is not going to be the solution uh, to Ukraine. I think Ukraine is going to be the solution uh, in large part to the to the conflict in Ukraine. And what you will probably see based on history is that the UN can play a role in ratifying, blessing, giving legitimacy to uh, an outcome uh, whenever that comes, hopefully soon, but but we really don't know. And and I don't know that you'll see the UN as the agent uh, that, that, that creates that. I think, the, frankly, the Ukrainian government itself is probably going to be the most important actor in creating uh, a resolution here. And, and that kind of leads me to the final question, obviously, um, as we as we uh, begin to wind it down. Where do you see this going? I love a good forecast question, as I'm sure you do in geopolitical analysis. Um, let yeah. me let me clarify a little bit what I mean by that, and then I'll um, <laughs> and then you can take a good swing at it. Look, I personally think that the, the, there are potentially three main scenarios with this, uh, you know, in, invasion, advancement, phase, whatever you want to call it, with the Russians in the east. Right? Um, most political and military analysts I have seen, and I agree with, like Michael Kaufman, for example, um, thinks that there's going to be a slow advancement southwards. Um, from around the Luhansk region down to Donetsk and then try and just consolidate the line of contact as it's known for our audience uh, and listeners um, uh, to, to expand it from the former Donbass region to to include include the entire you know two oblasts which were the self-declared republics and then from there there may be a separate phase which is um, if they can go all the way down to Mariupol then go westwards uh, and see if they can get to uh, all the way to Kherson. Uh, and south of the Dinapa River, because that would basically incorporate their control of the Sea of Azov. But it would also mean that the Russians can rekindle this Novorossiya scenario, as I'm calling it, which is basically New Russia was for the audience and uh, listening in part of Ukraine that was under control of the Russian Empire in the late 1800s. So uh, this is the scenario that I think the Russians are most wanting to push for now. But I don't. It, but it, they don't necessarily have the just capability at this point. They've lost so many forces. So many um, pieces of important equipment uh, and vehicles that it's going to be quite a big undertaking. So I think they first want to try and keep that eastern flank, and then maybe if they can push along the south as far west as possible. I don't know if you agree with that. What your take is on that? And then just to, to, to a second part to the question is: uh, Let's say that they don't manage that part, and then we see them entertaining peace negotiations properly. What do you think is the most likely outcome of those peace negotiations? So, firstly, the the potential advancement, and then the uh, the subsequent peace. Yeah. So, so, so great question. Uh, and and the Novorossiya uh, aspect, I think, also plays into this kind of mystical um, uh, uh, appeal to history that Putin seems to have had, at least in the back of his mind, for a long time. But he just has to deal with the realities uh, on the ground, which are which are not going in his favor. So, I. Obviously, he has uh, lost uh, the Battle of Kiev, and the Ukrainians have won. So if his maximalist uh, goals were to um, change the regime in Kiev, to install a kind of a puppet regime, uh, he has failed. And, and I think everybody, including he, has to, has to recognize that that, 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 that that has failed. One, I've learned not to predict the future, and when I, when I deviate from that rule, I, I, I regret it. But, but I, I, I'll give my... my guess assessment as to what you know the the more realistic aims of the russians are right now which is similar to what you've said they want to uh, maintain control 
of uh, the Donbass. They have complicated their life perhaps a little bit by recognizing independence of Donetsk and Lugansk, but 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 they, I think their goals will be to maintain control of an area which you know they had kind of effective control of before, uh, but never mind. And most of all, though, I, I think they're over. They're the most important objective is Crimea. Uh, that's the most important thing to them. And my my guess is that they want to maintain that northern approach to Crimea. They want to maintain the fresh water supply, the supply of water to Crimea, and they want to have a land corridor. You can call it a land bridge. I do think they want to have a contiguous control control of a contiguous strip of land that'll increase their uh, their security uh, in controlling uh, of Crimea. And at the same time, it'll give them control of Azov. Whether they can get that um, is an entirely different question. Uh, and, and, and I do think what you alluded to uh, makes a big difference, right? Uh, I mean, it's one thing to look at this as kind of a strategic chessboard. Uh, you know, how do you control different parts uh, of uh, of the map, and where does that get you as far as lines of communication and military control uh, and the like? Um, what happened in Bucha, or what was revealed uh, in Bucha, I think has had a dramatic effect politically uh, as well as militarily on this conflict because um, it can only increase the resolve uh, of the Ukrainians and the West to defend the territory of Ukraine, because it's not just that Russia gets control of a certain uh, piece of U- Ukraine's territory if it's successful, but the atrocities that are going to ensue uh, with that control, the filtration camps, the torture, the rape, uh, the executions, you know, that makes it much, much less tolerable, uh, m- more intolerable, and just more more imperative that Ukraine retain control of Ukrainian territory when you see the consequences of that territory falling under Russian control. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Price, uh, for indulging that. I think you took a damn well good stab at it. Um, and it's, uh, I appreciate you bringing us full circle to sort of what we, we, we first touched upon. So what I want to do first is go to the myth, the man, the legend, which is Mr. Jacob. Um, he helps uh, arrange the fantastic um, speaking events like the one you're listening to today with uh, SICE's Foreign Policy Institute or FPI owe him a great deal of gratitude and um, appreciation for the support he's given. But uh, he's, I think he, he has something on Butra as well. So Jacob, all yours. How will Bugat and other potential war crimes that like we've seen in Mariupol, for example, affect the bigger picture in Ukraine? Um, and that'll be, uh, for example, um, NATO's uh, assistance to Ukraine, as well as the Ukrainian resolve to fight uh, the Russians. Great. Th- thank you, Jacob. And, uh, you know, th- th- that is a great question. Uh, I-, I do think that it- it'll have effects on, on two levels. Uh, one is uh, on the Russians. Um, and if, you know, if, uh, again, if, if Putin's objective was to increase Russia's prestige and influence uh, in the world, this has reminded people of just, you know, uh, some some horrific uh, memories of brutality uh, of of Russian forces in other areas, including in Chechnya and Syria. And, you know, when Putin wants to celebrate uh, May 9th, um, the the Soviet army, I think this is this is going to overshadow that uh, a bit. And and then with respect to the West and Ukraine, it is only going to increase 
the resolve of the Western democracies and, and Ukraine to defend their territory and their people uh, from from these kinds of atrocities, uh, which you know, which seem to be persistent. And it's not just Putin. Uh, we're seeing it in 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 all sorts of other uh, other areas of the conflict. And 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 you know, bear in mind. Many people, I think, until they saw these images of the bodies with their hands bound and bullet uh, wounds in the back of their head, might have seen the war crimes, the atrocities in a different lens. They might have seen it as, you know, bombardment uh, from a distance and uh, Russia drawing the balance wrong, not being sufficiently careful uh, to avoid civilian uh, casualties, you know, being, if you wanted to be extremely charitable, which I don't know who is, but if you wanted to be charitable, you'd say they're just being sloppy, you know, they're being disregarding. And here what you have is something that's undeniably a purposeful, direct, intentional, face-to-face assassination of civilians who are helpless. And there's just, you know, there's no nuance to that. So the level of sort of criminality, the, the atrocity that, that's being revealed uh, by, by the liberation of Butra and, and other communities, I think, is, is just stealing, reinforcing, cementing in, 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 in the body politic uh, of the West the notion that, that this is not just a crime against the sovereignty and independence of Ukraine. Uh, the, the, these are very much sort of crimes against against people and, and crimes of a very brutal nature. And and to go back to your question, I think it can only increase the resolve, has only increased the resolve of Ukraine and its supporters in the West to to resist this um, this aggression. You know, I, I visited Serebrenica myself. I don't even know the right the right word to see, use really. Harrowing, chilling um events that I've ever seen. To to, to go into the uh, to the factory where the five thousand boys were shot. It, it, it sort of you yeah it's it's like nothing you really ever see to see sort of the walls black from well I'm sure you can imagine what and the and the nails into the wood of the door frame it's it's very uh, powerful I guess it's just yeah but thank you for that question Jacob uh, something that I think we should never forget um, uh, next up I want to move to to a great friend um, and f- fellow uh, UN nerd like myself well he's actually much more important than I am in that regard but uh, Bilal uh, the floor's yours. Thank you so much, Piotr, and thank you, Professor. And my question revolves around uh, maintaining the coalition that is there. As we see that you referenced it earlier, that 141 countries voted in support of Ukraine's sovereignty. And that coalition is is ironclad, let's say, between you know the EU, US, Western uh, countries. Um, but that coalition is fragile once you get towards, let's say, the Gulf countries, some Asian countries, and let's say some African countries. Um, I say that in in the context of Gulf countries, you know, supporting in favor of the resolution, but let's say not, uh, let's say going forward with either sanctions or let's say increasing oil supply, Um, similar with some Asian uh, countries. So my question is maybe forward thinking, how do you think, how do you think we can keep that coalition together and how far do you think that coalition can go together? Meaning like how far do you think the Biden administration can push that coalition of 141 people to, or countries to let's say get more and more either sanctions or 
you know, isolation, things like that of Russia. So I'm interested to see that dynamic on, on how they can keep that coalition together because it's mm-hmm. fragile, especially with certain regions. And how far do you think they can push that coalition to meet their end objective? So thank you for taking the time out to answer my question. Uh, thank you. And uh, th- that, that's a great question. And, you know, I think, I think there's several things to say about that. One, one, uh, if I hadn't said it already, um, I did want to point out that, th- you know, this, this crisis, we saw it coming once before, uh, February 24th. I do have to say, I think the Biden administration's diplomacy has been superb. I've said it before and I'll say it here. Um, as far as just taking, uh, a, a lot of time, a lot of consultations, reaching out, uh, particularly with with the Europeans, but also around around the world, to just do the diplomacy, the shoe leather diplomacy, and the communication to pull together that coalition. And you you see that in a vote of 141 uh, to five. So 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 they they I think have been really good at the diplomatic effort. And allied with that is the information war. So if you look at this as, you know, Piotr mentioned total war, um, you know, the Soviets, uh, we see a little bit of reverting to type. The Soviets had a concept of war, which was didn't draw a distinction as much between political and military as we tend to in the West. But this has been a sort of a whole of government approach. Uh, so there's been an information aspect. There's been an economic aspect, a diplomatic aspect and a military aspect. And all of these, I think, have been have been sort of working together. So in addition to the diplomatic efforts that, that, that the Biden administration uh, has, I think, pursued very well, including, for instance, letting the Europeans take the lead, you know, which is, was theirs to do, but, but sort of supporting uh, a lot of our allies uh, and, and, and not, not sort of stepping on their message or, 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 or taking too much of the oxygen in the room has led to uh, very strong support. For instance, the the Germans when they when they made their switch, they made it without any appearance of pressure from the United States or anyone else. And for that reason, you know, the turnaround uh, in German foreign policy is going to be more lasting and deeper uh, and, and stronger within the German polity. So I think those basics are there, and I. I assume the Biden administration is going to continue. The other thing uh, that's been very good is the use of intelligence. Uh, the British uh, have been very good at this as well, is the declassification and the dissemination of information in a very strategic way, including, for instance, to spoil uh, some of the false flag gambits or, you know, the Russians, you know, had contemplated, uh, I think it's pretty clear, Various kinds of, you know, provocations, false flag operations. And by exposing them in advance, the Biden administration and, and, and allies, the British and others, uh, have basically, um, spoiled, uh, that and, and kind of left, left the, the Russians, uh, flat footed. So it, it, it's going to be a long term effort. I think the Europeans, you know, for obvious reasons are highly motivated to maintain unity in a war in their area. And it's going to be, I think, a job to maintain uh, the level of support that, that we would want when the economic consequences of, you know, fertilizer, grain, energy, you know, uh, come into play. But, but, I, but I do think that, the, you know, so far, the diplomatic effort has been really very good. 
uh, and and hopefully that same you know that same effort continues. Moving on, I'd love to bounce over to to Jaya. She's uh, I think she's got a fantastic question uh, regarding India. Thank you, Piotr, and thank you, Professor and Jacob, for making today happen this session. I'll jump to my question, um, and it's specific to do with uh, India's current position. Um, India has received due criticism for its role in between Russia and Ukraine. In your opinion, how would you describe India in a stronger position while not posing a threat to itself as it relates to border threats and relations with U.S. and Russia? Well, so that's that's a complicated one, and I and I can't I can't claim to have enough expertise in uh, in Indian foreign policy to give to give a definitive answer. But but let me just say that you know, historically, India has had uh, a close relationship with Russia and before Russia, the Soviet Union. Um, it has relied on Russia for uh, armaments. Uh, there's a continuing relationship in that regard. Um, there's also uh, a bit of geopolitics there, which is that uh, India obviously has a contested uh, border, uh, has, has, has some security issues uh, with China. And so India has in the past sought to sort of soften conflict with uh, Russia uh, in view of its view that Russia should not be driven closer to China. So it's, it's parts of the world where geopolitically the, the equation becomes you know, complex. There's different factors, I think, at play in India's sort of traditional role here. Um, India is also a democracy. Uh, and I think many people expect that, you know, as a democracy, India would take, you know, a principled stand uh, in support of, of Ukraine. And I think there are probably uh, significant, India being a democracy, significant debates taking place inside India as to, you know, the role that, the role that India should play. Uh, in this, uh, in this sort of geopolitical and principled uh, conflict, so so I guess that's all by way of saying that it's it's complicated. I do think one important feature of this that bears remembering is that India is a democracy, and so that's going to have an effect not just on the diplomacy, but I think on the way that its foreign policy uh, is shaped by its internal uh, political uh, debates. Thank you very much for that great question there, Jaya. Very much appreciated. I think next up we'll, we'll, we'll go over to Tia. Uh, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Professor, for being here and answering our questions. Uh, I was wondering if you have an idea of where do you think Putin will be at the end of this conflict? So that is a great question, and I think nobody knows the answer to that. One, because nobody knows exactly how this conflict uh, is going to end. There are there are some who say that this has been such a strategic miscalculation that, you know, it may call into question Putin's continuing to be at the helm of the Russian state. Um, the United States has basically said, look, what happens in Russia is going to be decided in Russia. That's not for, you know, us, the United States or other people to uh, decide. That's certainly true. It raises a number of questions. One uh, is uh, not directly related to this, but I think implicated is, you know, is Putin's state of mind. I mean, a lot of people have openly questioned Putin's judgment at a minimum uh, is good. And I think, you know, uh, I think clearly it's not. And one of the reasons it's not and one of the reasons uh, why the decisions have been so poor is because Putin is an autocrat. He has concentrated almost all of the power of the state in his person. So it's kind of a one-man rule with a lot of sort of 
cult of personality aspects. And that comes with a lot of weaknesses, which is that he tends to get only the advice that his advisors think he wants. There's also, I think, a culture there uh, where the truth is is malleable uh, for uh, instrumental reasons. And so um, what you see is Putin lying to his uh, officials and his officials uh, apparently lying to him. And that creates very, very bad outcomes. How this ends, uh, I can't say. You know, Putin at some point, he, he is not immortal. Uh, he, you know, he won't be the head of Russia uh, forever. And, you know, one of the problems with his style of rule is that he doesn't have, as far as I can see, any clear line of succession. So, so, so you know, what happens after Putin, and there will at some point be an after Putin, whether it's sooner or later, isn't clear, and, and he's avoided having having anyone, you know, who's in a position to, to challenge him. So, so that, that, I think, complicates things for Russia. Clearly, Russia would prosper under a better form of government, but dictators... Uh, are good at one thing, which is maintaining themselves in power. If you look at just the virtually paranoid uh, precautions that Putin takes, uh, keeping his own minister of defense uh, and chief of general staff like 15 feet away when he's having meetings with them, not you know he won't drink or eat anything that hasn't been tested. There are certain aspects of of his government that you know they're, they're clearly unusual and 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 concerning. How his regime, you know, comes to an end, which sooner or later it has to. Uh, it's just hard to say. I'll, I'll, all I can say is my personal view is that we can't count on that. We have to just assume for for the near term that for current purposes, Putin is at the top of the power vertical, and we shouldn't count on any change uh, in in trying to shape policy towards his uh, war in Ukraine. Thank you for that very simple but uh, very meaningful question, I think. Next up, I want to go to a personal friend of mine here in DC. happens to live in the same building I do, uh, and I notified him about uh, this great discussion uh, we're having with Professor Price. So, Chad, love to go to you, my friend. Peter, thank you so much. That was such a flattering introduction. I really appreciate it. And Professor, thank you for... uh taking the time to uh, share your, your thoughts on this with us. This is obviously a massive, massive, massive ordeal. What does this mean for the greater European Union security apparatus, given everything that's going on and how Germany, specifically Germany and France, are restructuring their militaries at this time? What broader implications do you think this conflict has for that, as well as for America's standing with our European allies? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, NATO is an evolving institution. We've seen it evolve a number of times Uh even during the Cold War, but certainly since the Cold War, there was, you know, a period when uh, it was said that NATO has to go uh, out of area, it'll go out of business. Um, NATO at one point took on, you know, a major role in uh, Afghanistan, in other conflicts, uh, uh, you know, sort of in a supporting role in the Middle East. So NATO, uh, one of its strengths is that it's an evolving institution. And I think there's no question that it's going to evolve again. And is evolving again in response to to this. I mean, this process started in 2014 at the Wales summit uh, when NATO basically started to refocus on the European security uh, environment and the threat that Russia was beginning to show uh, in Ukraine. And it's clearly much, much more acute now. So I think what you're going to see is a lot more emphasis on internal European security, you're going to see more emphasis on the East because that's become a much more acute uh, security challenge. I think you're going to see increasing defense budgets, not just in Germany, but, you know, Canada's increasing its defense budget. I think countries across the alliance are going to focus much more on sort of the, the conventional defense, which, 
you know, had seemed to be less, uh, you know, of a priority perhaps, you know, uh, in other times. So, so yeah, I think, I think you're going to see, uh, this summer, you're going to see, you know, more focus. And, and, you know, one of the good things about NATO, as I said, is it, is that it has shown the, the capacity to evolve and adapt and adapt several times. And it's going to, uh, evolve and adapt again. I mean, one, one of the things I, I should just mention, uh, as I, as I think I mentioned, I was involved in, in the, the first major evolution, uh, in European security, uh, in the 1990s after the Cold War. And in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was not a foregone conclusion that European security would be uh, structured around NATO in the way that it is. Uh, and sort of bitter experience, including Srebrenica, Bosnia, led everyone, I think, to to the conclusion cemented in Bosnia that NATO had to maintain its position as the military security center uh, of European security. And the interesting thing I think you're seeing is that nobody is questioning that. You know, one of, one of the uh, one of the unspoken assumptions is that, however this plays out, NATO is going to continue to be, you know, a vital uh, foundation for security, and it's going to be at the center uh, of European security. You know, however this 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 evolves. Um, I just want to pop over to uh, Nav. Who I think had a, an interesting question, and, and then we'll probably end with uh, with Royfield Brown. But uh, now the question's your the floor is yours. I know you guys briefly touched on the um, topic of the UN Security Council, and I was just thinking during that conversation, like why don't they have mechanisms in place where if there is a member of that permanent team and one of them clearly violates, like there's automatic, there's an automatic, like can't be part of this. A permanent membership anymore because you violated XYZs. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and uh, again, it's a great question because it's it's extremely frustrating to see a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council violating the United Nations Charter. The problem with regard to uh, to permanent members is that the charter is written in such a way that most important decisions of this nature require either the action or the recommendation of the Security Council and substantive decisions of the Security Council have to be made uh, with the concurrence or can't be made over the objection of any of the P5 members. So it's kind of a, uh, a structural flaw, if you will, or a structural feature of the United Nations Charter, which is it's very hard to change the operation of the UN Charter uh, over the objections of one of the permanent five members. I mean, there are, I think someone alluded to this, there, 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 there was the case of China where the representation was changed from the Republic of China to the People's Republic of China, so from nationalist China to the PRC. But that's where you had two competing governments sort of contesting for the seat of, of one one country that was a member of, of the United Nations. So so I think, you know, unfortunately, the short answer is it will be hard to fundamentally change the structure of, of the UN. And, you know, it will be hard to do it uh, over Russia's objections. Uh, I mean, the Ukrainian representative did uh, point to, I believe it's Article 27 of the Charter, which says that uh, party to a dispute should abstain from voting in that dispute. The problem with that is that certainly the way Russia can interpret that 
that's chapter six disputes, uh, not chapter seven disputes. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, it, it's not there's not a clear path to resolve uh, this complication in the U.N. I mean, it seems to me that right now, sitting where we're sitting, one of the more uh, sort of optimistic approaches is, is to do use the workarounds that have already started to be used, such as using the General Assembly, using Uniting for Peace using other multilateral organizations to fill the gap uh, that the Security Council, the, the functions that the Security Council isn't particularly able to uh, fulfill. You know, one interesting thought experiment would be, well, suppose the Security Council were to be able to adopt binding resolutions, you know, how much of an effect would that have on a recalcitrant nuclear power in any event? I think it might have some effect, but it might not fundamentally change the uh the, the military facts on the ground uh, in any event. Thanks, Professor. And uh, I know with our resident UN expert, I mean, I like to pretend I am, but Balao really is. Uh, Balao, I think you wanted to add on to uh, the Professor's great point. Uh, yes, thanks, Piotr. And actually, thanks, Professor. Everything he said was absolutely correct. And I just wanted to give the context of which the United Nations Charter was established. It was created in the context of trying to get the United States Senate to sign on to it. The United States Senate was not uh, did not uh, agree to basically the League of Nations. And so when they drafted the United Nations Charter, they basically wanted to ensure that the United States had power. And so that's why it was drafted in a way to make it really difficult to do anything with P5 members in order to get the Senate's approval at the time. The question probably would, what would happen if a member state can be kicked off for, if a member state, you know, have any type of sanctions against it, then we probably would not have United Nations Charter because the Senate would probably not have approved it. To, to wind us down with the last question for uh, for this afternoon, uh, is the wonderful Yoifil Brown, who also hosts a fantastic podcast, The Mid-Atlantic, which I highly recommend listeners yeah, thank you, Piotr, and being great listening to you, uh, Professor Price. Uh, my question is about American and British intelligence. The one thing which has been really stark in this conflict, even before it started, was how good American and British intelligence is, um, so much so that they telegraphed to the day when the invasion would happen. And one of the things which has also really marked this conflict is using British and American intelligence as, as a weapon of war. Uh, the British uh, Defence Ministry uh, every day tweets exactly what the Russians are planning to do, what they, um, you know, and Rus Russian movements uh, on the ground. So good has been British and uh, American intelligence that the head of the French uh, Secret Service actually resigned uh, at the end of March because of the failure of the French Secret Service actually to telegraph that this um, invasion was going to happen. Um, they thought that this was bluff and bluster. And um, when General Eric Vidaud resigned, he said, you know, the British and the Americans uh, are far superior to us in this regard. Why is it, do you think, that the British and the Americans have so many intelligent assets in high places within uh, the Russian uh, system? So that, that is a great question. And first, let me just uh, say that I agree with a lot of the premises that you laid out there. I agree with you that the intelligence has been superb. Typically, British and American intelligence, there's always been a close relationship there. Uh, along with some other countries, and it's a relationship which is highly valued, and there's a lot of investment in it. We invest quite a bit uh, in intelligence, and, and, and a lot of our, our friendly countries do as well. I would mention as an aside that the Ukrainians seem to have tremendous uh, intelligence on, on occasions as well as to what's going on 
uh, in in the Russian government, and and you know I think one can just speculate as to as to the sources of that. Uh, a couple of thoughts. Uh, one is that it has to put Putin at some unease. For instance, when Zelensky seems to know uh, what he's doing, or what what he what he's likely to do, and that can can perhaps have some uh, complicating effect on the operations uh, of a Russian system, which is already showing certain signs of, of, of paranoia. But the other thing I, I think is important to, to emphasize, as you have noted, traditionally intelligence services have been very cautious about putting out their product in the public. And what you've seen here, I think, has been an extremely excellent, effective example of kind of a whole of government approach to, you know, if, if war is policy by other means, then we're using all the instruments of national power in the manner that's most effective. So not letting you know, an overly conservative approach get in the way of actually having effects uh, on, on the situation on the ground. And, 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 you know, the way that plays out is uh, we, the West have spoiled quite a number of, uh, of, of Putin's plans and strategies by exposing them in advance, and that has just been extremely effective. So I think it's it's it, it's a it's a very effective use of instruments of national power, which will probably be studied uh, for a long time to come. And kudos to the intelligence services uh, for the job that they've been doing. Thank you very much for that great final question, there, Royfield. Professor, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think we've discussed everything from the EU to NATO to America and transatlantic uh, relations to Russia, nuclear disarmament and the UN Security Council as well. I'm surprised we didn't sort of discuss China more. Um, I usually try and keep stock of how many times the word China crops up in anything to do with geopolitics. But for once, it was surprisingly not that many. So I would love to have you back uh, in a future date to discuss um, some other future potential security concerns like Taiwan, of course. But with that, um, everybody, I just want to say thank you very much again for listening in. This, uh, is, this brings us to a close for this episode of The Global Gambit. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Lastly, don't be shy. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. But until next time, this is the global gambit.